Welcome to episode 22 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. Today is August 9th, and we're going to talk to a microbiologist about both his work on viruses, which is obviously a topic of interest given the ongoing pandemic, and his work in the field, which spans the last several decades to understand the history of the field itself, what's changed, and what's remained the same. Our guest for this episode is Vincent Recaniello, who is the Higgins Professor of Microbiology and Immunology at Columbia University. We can spend an entire episode introducing his work, since he has published so extensively. Broadly, his work is focused on picornavirus replication and pathogenesis. So in other words, he looks at how polio, conjunctivities, and the common cold, among others, interact with the immune system. Vincent has published dozens of articles, including in prestigious outlets such as Science, Nature, and the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Vincent is also strongly committed to bringing science to broader public audiences. He runs the Virology website at virology.ws, which is an informative site for learning about viruses and infectious diseases more broadly. Yeah, the website actually has content ranging from high-level discussions of viruses to a free children's book about COVID or a description of visiting a biosafety level four lab. It has a section on microbe art and even a section titled The Wall of Polio, which I'll leave to listeners to check for themselves. So I strongly recommend visiting the website. Oh, and Vincent also produces five or six podcasts. The largest one of these is his This Week in Virology podcast, which now has 650 episodes and is definitely worth listening to for discussions that make science more understandable for the public. Now, Lee, I'm actually quite impressed because I was pretty proud of reaching 22 episodes, um, but 650 is just at a whole other level. (laughs) Give us a year or two, I guess. So, hi, Vincent. Hey, how are you? Nice to be on your show. Yeah, thanks. And as usual in our episodes, we begin by describing the very local effects of COVID-19 where each of us says. So Merle, how are things in Annapolis this week? Um, Pretty much the usual. I drove by a rooftop bar the other night, which was packed with people. So that was great to see. Um, And then the other, I guess, big update in our end is we uh, pulled our kids from their childcare, daycare, school for the fall um, because... The rates here are just quite high in Maryland, and they don't seem to be going down anytime soon. So you're going to keep them at home, or have no? Any other we're looking for no. We're looking for a, a nanny where we're going to work with another family from their school who has pretty similar uh, quarantining habits, um, and they have a finished basement where the kids will basically spend time with the nanny for the three of them. Okay. So I mean, that's about the best we can do, considering the you know, it's about, I think, a four to five percent, at least percentage positive rate here in Annapolis, which is about the limit of what you want to do and send kids. And also it just comes down to a reliability factor, right? Both my wife and I work. And so if the school gets shut down for 14 days twice, which seems highly probable, that that's 25% of the entire fall already, right? So that's not exactly ideal. So... That's kind of where we're at at this point. And virtual school for three-year-olds is, is worthless. So Do you know if this school will be open for other the kids moment, who do want? Yeah, at the moment, they're saying they're going to open on August 17th with various procedures in place, which I won't list at this point in time. But we'll see what actually happens over the next few weeks. So what's happening there in Jerusalem, Lee? I assume your government's still just pretending nothing has changed. 
Yeah, so things are mostly slow. Quarantine, which was a big thing we kind of spoke about in the previous episodes, won't be happening anytime soon. But we do have, as of today, a new set of rules in place, now limiting gatherings to 10 people indoors and 20 people outdoors. Restaurants are obviously an exception with a few more people that can stay there. So, so we have all these regulations on one hand. On the other hand, the demonstrations very close to my home are still happening every week. Interesting things happening here. Now, I also saw that, Merle, I don't know if you saw this, but Princeton University, where both of us went to, decided to go all online teaching in the fall, which wasn't really unexpected. Good idea. Good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think it was unexpected. I, I talked to a couple of faculty members and the general sense was like, yeah, of course, this was bound to happen. They were just waiting on the president to admit this was going to happen. I mean, you know, I think they'd already knew of at least 10 or 12 seniors who had rented out whole houses in the suburbs of Princeton. And so even though the seniors weren't allowed to come back in the fall because they were doing a split school year, they were still all going to be back. So, you know, mm. I don't think it was going to work. Yeah. No, it's, it's probably going to be a very different experience for any freshmen who start studying this year. I mean, some of them may have not been on campus at all, right? Because there yeah. were no visits really last spring. So where are you, Vincent, and what's happening there? So I teach at Columbia University, which is in New York. And of course, in the spring, our classes were canceled uh, at spring break and moved online. So I finished my virology course. This is a really amazing. My virology course was canceled because of a virus. It's, just, it's so surreal. It's unbelievable. Uh, so we, can, we finished the course on Zoom, and then I taught a summer virology course. But I still went in about one day a week. I live in New Jersey, and I drove in. And now uh, we are ramping up at the Medical Center of Columbia, and I go in two days a week. But you know, I drive, I, I park in the garage, I walk to my office. I hardly see anyone. I wear a face mask. There's no one on the elevator, essentially. And my floor is empty except for my lab, which is one other person. So I feel safe doing that. But I think only twice a week is enough. And other than that, I do nothing. I go home, I, I spend the entire uh, day in my office podcasting, writing, and doing all sorts of things. And um, I can do that for a year or two if I have to. I don't need to go to restaurants. I don't need to travel. In the New York area, you know, we have very few cases per day. We have less than 10 per day, although the, the numbers are rising as people come from elsewhere in the U.S. where there are huge outbreaks like Texas, uh, Florida, et cetera. But uh, they've managed to keep it quite low. And But I, I tell you, when schools open in the fall, boom, it's going to shoot up again. I'm waiting to see that happen. Yeah, I've noticed there's a complex way in which it seems like Columbia is and isn't letting back its PhD students. Um, yeah, among others. yeah, but the, the undergraduates are coming back in the fall. And, um, you know, it's up to the professor whether you want to teach in person or online. And they're only going to be tested once a week which really is not enough to pick up. Uh, so I'm, I tell you, every place that goes back in some way, they're going to have in the first week infections, and they're going to have to shut down or decide what to do. So I think it's crazy to go in person at this point. Although I know the, the high schools and the elementary schools, it's really a, a difficult situation for the parents, right? Because they have to work and they have no child care. And in a way, that's why New York City is, is having school. But I think it's very dangerous, you know, so... Are there any faculty members you know who would want to teach in person at this point? Well, I would, frankly, if, if I had the choice 
Uh, not the fall. I think the fall you have to do Zoom. But in the spring, that's when I teach my course. And I have to decide if the cases are way down, I would do it in person with a face mask. I mean, I really like teaching in person. But if there are lots of cases, I won't do it. I, I won't be silly, right? Because I don't think a vaccine is going to be widely available until next summer, frankly. And I'm not even sure anything that is available. I mean, if something gets approved this fall, it's crazy because you have no idea if it lasts more than a month. You need to know durability of, of vaccination, right? You don't need to say, yeah, it protected it for a month. You need to know six months a year because you can't immunize people and have it wane in three months. It's ridiculous. And likewise, you can't have a vaccine that's 50% effective and expect that 50 out of 100 people are going to get infected. They're, they're hoping to be protected, right? This is all crazy. To use a word my colleague used, it's all for cocta. <laughs> <laughs> you guys know that word, right? Yeah, yeah. very well. It's one of my, was one of my grandparents' favorite words. <laughs> so that's what we are in New York. So just to follow up quickly on that, so you see this event as continuing into 2021 and 2022, perhaps? Yeah, I think so. I think a vaccine could be available or vaccines could be broadly available next summer. But, and, you know, whether or not they're broadly effective, we won't know for quite a while. You know, getting a vaccine, vaccine to 350 people just in the U.S. is a challenge, right? And it's never been done before in a short time. So all these things have to be met. So I'm being conservative. So, you know, originally I thought it would wane over this summer, but it has not. And it just shows that the lack of population immunity is driving continued outbreaks. So I think we have at least another year to go for sure. And, you know, the, the sad part of, about all this is it all could have been prevented. We didn't have to have, you know, 700,000 deaths, 5 million cases. We didn't have to have that if we had only thought ahead. but we didn't. The scientists were trying, but we weren't allowed to. So maybe that's a good segue. <laughs> Rather than thinking ahead, what we wanted to at least initially talk to you about is thinking back mm -hmm. and maybe tell us briefly what it was like to study viruses as a graduate student in the 1970s. You know, I have to say, it could, it could be another era. I mean, all you guys were born since then. And you probably think the 70s didn't actually exist except in <laughs> history books. And I understand that because for me, the 50s, you know, are another era and I only read about them. But when I was, I went to graduate school for my PhD, Mount Sinai in New York City from 1975 to 1979. And the only pandemics we knew about were influenza pandemics. There had been, uh, you know, a pandemic in 1968, 57, and then 1918 before that. And so when I went to grad school, the big focus was influenza. None of these other viruses, you know, we, we barely understood this concept of zoonotic infections, that is viruses going from animals to humans, even though we now know all of our viruses came from animals, right? But we didn't quite get that. All we were focused on were, was influenza. You know, we had a vaccine and we tried to react. And when I was in graduate school, the first year, 1976, there was a little outbreak of swine flu in Fort Dix, New Jersey. A few recruits got infected with this virus that looked like it was coming from pigs. It was an influenza virus of pigs, of course. 
And people thought this was going to be the next pandemic, right? It was about 10 years from 1968. And so what the U.S. did is make a vaccine and they started vaccinating people. And the, the outbreak never went anywhere. It never went outside of Fort Dix. It was a complete red herring. And my advisor, Peter Palazzi, knew this because he had looked at the virus and said, this is a pig virus. It has nothing human about it. There's no way that this could spread in people. Uh, nevertheless, they went ahead and vaccinated. And it was disastrous because uh, many people got a syndrome called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a paralysis caused by your immune system reacting against you. And often triggered by infectious diseases, and in this case, the vaccine. So the, this was under the Gerald Ford administration. So the immunization was halted, and I think that really contributed a lot to anti-vaccine sentiment in this country because they blew it. They made a mistake. And the guy who pushed that, he was actually the chair of my department, Ed Kilborn. He was an influenza virologist, and he had advised the president to make this vaccine and distribute it. And he was wrong because he didn't get the molecular biology that Peter Palazzi and others were just starting to bring out. You know, he was an old classic virologist. And so his, the rest of his career was basically tainted by this incident. And uh, he died maybe five years ago, and I wrote a blog post he was, he was essential to my career, actually. He gave me great advice. And so I really appreciated that. And I wrote a nice uh, blog post about him. And they actually, his family actually asked me to, to give the eulogy at his funeral because they said, you're the only person writing nice things about Ed Kilborn. Everyone else just talks about swine flu. <laughs> All right. So that was the first thing that happened. Then the next year, 1977, a brand new influenza virus starts to circulate, first in China, Russia, then it spreads globally. And that was a pandemic, a bona fide pandemic. But the amazing thing, when my advisor, Peter Palazzi, he took that virus and analyzed it by the, the current modern molecular techniques, he found it was exactly the same as a virus that had been circulating in the 1950s. And so what happened was, it got out of a lab, probably. It was probably a vaccine trial that went awry. Nobody has ever admitted it, neither China nor Russia. But it's clearly, it was probably a vaccine trial, and the virus got out. And because no one was immune to it anymore, here it is, 1977, you have a whole cohort of people who are now not immune to it, it caused the pandemic. And that circulated uh, for many years. So two very unusual events during my PhD thesis, right? A false start in 1976, and then this weird pandemic in 1977. But the point is that we're focused entirely on influenza virus. And the, the focus on other virus really didn't start until I would say the 80s, right, with the emergence of HIV-1, and then the 90s with the emergence of viruses from bats. And so that, that came many years later. And, we, and, you know, by then we had the experimental tools that we could use to, to identify those. So, you know, the early days, my training was a mixture of classical virology and modern techniques. And then when I went to do a postdoc, I was lucky to get a postdoc with David Baltimore. He had just gotten a Nobel Prize for discovering a really important enzyme, reverse transcriptase. And I was then in, initiated into the modern era of science and all the, the things. And then for the next 20 years, the field underwent an incredible revolution to give us everything we have today, where basically nothing is beyond our grasp of understanding. It's just a matter of being able to do the experiments. So was it a small field back then or medium, or did the field grow over time? 
virology as a field began only around 1900, right? And from 1900, I would say until the 50s, it was moribund because there was not much you could do. Everything you had to do, you had to do in animals, right? I mean, people tried to make vaccines from 1906 to 1950, and they failed over and over because they could not grow viruses in cells and culture. It wasn't until the 50s that that technology was developed. Then the first vaccine, well, the first vaccine uh, on a mass scale was the polio vaccine grown in cell culture. I should say before that, they did make flu vaccines, but they grew them in eggs because they knew the virus would grow in those hosts. And so starting in the 50s, I would say that's the golden age of virology where the field began to grow. It was still not a huge field by the time I went into it. But then from then on, with all the new technology emerging, it, it grew and grew. It's bigger now, and it seems, but it seems today that everyone's a virologist all of a sudden, <laughs> even though they're not. It's still not a huge field. Say it's not as big as cancer or you know, hypertension or any of those areas, but uh, it is substantial. And it's grown now, of course, because of the pandemic. So how is it like to study virology today as a graduate student based on, I mean, what do you see with your graduate students or colleagues, graduate students? Uh, you know, I thought the techniques I had were amazing, right, as a student. But now looking back, they were pretty rudimentary. And now we have amazing technologies. For example, when I was a student, recombinant DNA was just being developed, the ability to take a nucleic acid, clone it, amplify it, seek, determine its genome sequence, mutate it. All of that became possible in the later years of my graduate studies. Uh, very efficient high-throughput sequencing became available. Polymerase chain reaction became available, which is now how we diagnose uh, infections, of course. And PCR was made possible because of reverse transcriptase, the enzyme discovered by David Baltimore and Howard Temin. And this enzyme copies RNA, makes a DNA copy. So then DNA is infinitely manipulable as compared to RNA. So you can do almost anything with it, including do PCR. Monoclonal antibody technology emerged. And maybe most importantly, the ability to take a virus, take a DNA copy of its genetic material and manipulate it. And that's now how we are making most of these SARS-CoV-2 vaccines. And then many other ancillary technologies that essentially allow you to say, infect the cell with a virus, and then ask, how does everything change in the cell? How does the DNA change? How does the RNA change? How do the proteins change? How do the metabolites change that are produced? Fab amazing, fabulous technology and you are only limited now by your imagination in what you can do, and by money, of course, because you need to have money to do all this expensive stuff. So it's really a remarkable sea change in just, what, uh, 25 years since I have been a student. And the most amazing part, it's all driven by curiosity, not by saying, I'm going to cure cancer or diabetes or this or that. It's all curious scientists stumbling onto things that then turn out to be useful. Recombinant DNA was, was a total accident. These people were looking at weird enzymes and bacteria saying, well, what do these do? Let's figure it out. And they, from that, they developed a whole new industry, biotechnology industry. Same thing with PCR. It's all accidental. And really, you have to remember that science only works through letting scientists be curious and pursuing their curiosity. And it works less well if you say, cure this disease. And unfortunately, this is the trend nowadays to say, we'll give you this money, but you have to cure this disease. And I think that's a big mistake. 
just out of curiosity, do you or do people teach younger PhD students who are going into the field kind of this history of not just the technological changes and the developments, but how you thought as a grad student, you know, in the 70s versus how, you know, maybe they think today? Well, I do because I I see the value of history, right? Those who forget history are condemned to repeat it. Oh, man, I tell my colleagues that every day and they ignore it. They, They do things, you know, just the story of the development of the polio vaccine is so instructive. And people are making the same mistakes today in the development of other vaccines, and they don't go back. I gave a talk in January at NIH. They're trying to develop a vaccine against a new virus causing childhood paralysis. And I said, these are the lessons from polio. Pay attention. They don't listen. So a few of us try and teach our students a little bit of the history. But, you know, unfortunately, young people, it seems to me, and I don't don't like to... um, put everyone in the same bucket, but young people don't like history. Now, maybe you guys are different because, you know, your podcast is all about history and that's great. But many people don't care about the past. They just want to do now. They want to do it quickly and move on. And I, I think there's a lot to learn. So that's in part on my podcast. We have a few older people who love to reminisce about how things used to be and how they inform the present. And, you know, listeners love that for sure. But I think today, if you were trained in a lab to get your PhD and your PI is relatively young, you're not going to get the benefit. You're going to get high-tech instruction, but it's not all that. It's not just the technology. It's all about the philosophy of science. Yeah, I mean, I think Lee was laughing at me because that's a question that Lee knows I'm really into these days is thinking about how people thought even 30, 40 years ago about you yeah. know, viruses or bacterium or whatever it might be. Oh, because I, I think I, knowing that change is super important. I love reading old papers, old books where people explain how they're thinking. And you know what? It's really similar. It's just they didn't have the technology, but they had the same thoughts and they're trying to work through the same problems. And boy, I wish some of them were alive today. I, I actually knew personally Albert Sabin. Uh, I interacted him with him quite a bit. He's the guy who developed the, one of the two polio vaccines. And he, he used to get mad at people because it they'd said stupid things and they made stupid assumptions and he would get up at meetings and tell people, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I have letters he wrote to me, which said, he wrote, you don't know what you're talking about. And we need people like that today because there's too much stuff going on where, yeah, people don't know what they're saying and they're not basing it on um, a good foundation. (laughs) So you mentioned the way science and curiosity kind of drives research forward. What about other other institutions or other things, for example, politics or companies? How would they, if at all, influence scientific research, maybe back then and today? Well, this whole idea of, of research being supported by government is relatively new. The NIH really came into being in the U.S. in the 50s, and their original idea was to train MDs to do research. And eventually that got completely perverted to the point now where, and I don't think it's bad because I think uh, the way they support research is great. But today they support all kinds of biomedical research uh, in the U.S. And they're an important part of that. But their budget, their annual budget is only $35 billion. And I say only because when you think about the return on investment of that, it is enormous. Every major discovery, 
the fact that we can even think about making a vaccine in one year against SARS-CoV-2 is based on years and years of NIH investment. So it's a, it's very much underfunded. And as a consequence, we cannot do a lot of the proactive things uh, that we should be doing. Industry has a role and it's it's only important when there's a profit to be made because that's how industry works. They are a for-profit organization or a collection of organizations. If they cannot make money, they will not develop a product. So if you have a great market, fine. They will develop wonderful drugs, and we have many, many life-saving medicines that have been developed by industry. But you know, the reason we're in this conundrum is because no one wanted to make an antiviral against SARS like coronaviruses, even though we knew they were in bats and ready to jump into people since 2003. No company wanted to invest in it. And even the NIH wouldn't invest because they said it was too risky. And that's why we're here and without foresight. So I think, you know, we have done really good things with the NIH budget, but if we're doubled or tripled or quadrupled, we could, we would have had a, an antiviral to take care of this infection before it left China for sure, because the the experiments are there to be done. They're very straightforward. It's not rocket science that we would have to do. It's just a matter of not having uh, the money to do it. So now you see companies are jumping to make vaccines and antivirals, mainly because there's money to be made. And the, gov the U.S. government is pouring billions right into these vaccines ahead of time without even knowing if they're going to work. I guess that's a good thing in, in times of a pandemic. But, you know, you could have put a fraction of that money in the previous 10 years and you'd, you'd be ready to go. So, you know, in the U.S. now, mainly NIH support, there's increasing military support for biomedical research because they're concerned about uh, service, service people's health and so forth, but it is still woefully uh, underfunded. And other countries like China and even India are increasing their biomedical research funding enormously because they recognize the benefit it has to the population. What about partisan politics? Are these, do these matter at all for, for research? That's very interesting because when I was a student, I saw no role of politics. The NIH budget got funded pretty much routinely. I mean, that was an era of largely Democratic House of Representatives and Senate, right? And then I noticed, in fact, particularly with the Bush, the first Bush administration, as the House and Cong as Congress became more and more conservative, them saying, what are we getting for our money? Instead of before, when they never asked questions about appropriating money to the NIH, uh, they asked, what are we getting for our money? And, and it began to be, we're only going to fund things that are going to cure a disease, which, I, you know, earlier I said, that's the wrong approach. You have to fund curiosity. And ever since then, it's been harder and harder to fund, so for example, research on fruit flies, Drosophila, worms, Cenorhabditis. These are fundamental uh, areas of research that have given rise to incredible knowledge, yet politicians make fun of them. You know, uh, William Proxmire had this thing called the Golden Fleece Award. He would pinpoint government spending that was a waste, and often he would pinpoint government grants for fruit fly research. And Sarah Palin was famously quoted as saying, why should we fund research on flies, right? Complete ignorance of the benefit. And this goes to this day where the budget of the NIH is too small. And again, uh, we only act looking back. So the money that we're spending now could have been spent 
previously, and it's not like people didn't say we should be spending money on these SARS-like viruses in China. It should have been spent. We would have been ready with a um, an antiviral or even a vaccine. Um, and today it's gone to the point where in this administration, we have been doing sampling of bats in China for a number of years now. There's an organization in New York called Eco Health Alliance that uh, gets NIH grants and goes to China and helps them collect to see what's circulating. And that's why we know there are threats to humanity circulating in bats. This administration canceled that grant a few months ago because the president thinks the virus came from a Chinese lab. So this is the extent to which now politics, and not even informed politics, uninformed politics is uh, influencing science. You know, the administration feels that this was made in a lab, and there's zero evidence for that, whereas there's plenty of evidence that the virus came from bats. So I think we're in a very toxic place right now with respect to government funding of research, and I hope we get out of it. Do you see that trend changing at any point soon? Depends what happens in November, I think. Uh, if we have a new administration, it will change, but not immediately because, you know, even historically, the Democrats have not been great supporters uh, of science. So, uh, you know, it's not going to change overnight. The NIH budget is not going to double or triple. It did actually, uh, it went up 10 times under the Clinton administration. Um, that was the last time it did that. But, you know, all that money doesn't end up getting used for research. So it's not going ha- not going to change overnight. But if we do change administrations, it will be on the right path, I think. I just want to chime in. I looked up the budget for the NEH, the National Endowment for Humanities, and it was like <laughs> the highest it's ever been this past year, and it was $162 million. Um, so comparatively, if <laughs> no, you want to ask why, yeah, if you want to ask why no one does history, there's another uh, reason, right? I mean, it yeah. just pales in comparison. Funding. Well, you know, the, the military budget is trillion dollars, right? And I, I just think a fraction of that could go to saving people's lives, uh, and it would make a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, this is probably explained by we work on uh, Yersinia pestis on the plague. And so one thing we've seen increasingly is more grants from DOD or yeah. Homeland Security for people right. doing ancient DNA research, because there's obviously a large chunk of money there. Yeah, it's getting actually easier to pitch research to DOD because they almost anything is of relevance to the, the health of servicemen and you know almost any virus or bacterium you work on you you can do that so I, I see that actually as an increasing source of research support so do you think what people will end up researching from this pandemic is going to drive research really moving forward I mean you've already suggested that we could have been doing this earlier but do you think there's going to be a major shift in research and how people are doing research because of this? So right now, everything that's being done, I would say 90% of what's being done is trying to develop vaccines and antivirals and other therapeutics, monoclonals, et cetera, to take care of this pandemic. There's no, there's very little basic science being done to understand the pathogen and how it interacts with us which really we would normally need to make a vaccine. I mean, we're doing, we're doing this vaccine without any fundamental knowledge that we need. Is it going to change going forward? So almost every lab I know of has, is doing some kind of SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 research uh, to, to learn things, and that's fine. But I would suspect that if we have a vaccine and we control this pandemic, uh, most of them will stop 
working on it, and it will be ma- mainly virologists who continue to work on it. And we can use SARS-1 as an example. So 2003, SARS-1 came and went within a year. It only infected 8,000 people globally, and within a year it was vanquished. And, you know, a handful of people continued to work on that virus. But, you know, once a virus is gone or controlled, it's very hard to muster enthusiasm to, to work on it, especially to get funds to work on it. So I think it'll be hard to continue to work uh, on this virus. But more importantly, are we going to be ready for the next one? Because there'll be a next pandemic, right? There's, well, for sure, there'll be a flu pandemic, but at least we can make a flu vaccine in a couple of months. That's okay. But there'll be another SARS-like virus emerging from bats, if not China, South America, Africa. Bats with these viruses are all over the world. You know, bats are numerous. They're 20% of all mammals. So are we going to be ready for that? Because of this, we could be. I can tell you exactly what we would have to do to be ready. Will we be? I don't think so. I have very little faith in humanity in the sense of learning from this lesson. And I'm sorry to be so dark about it, but I just have seen the way science and politics intersect for the last 25, 30 years. And I think uh, once a problem is gone, that's it. So for example, uh, Ebola virus outbreak, West Africa, 2015. A couple of cases came to the U.S., so Congress appropriates money to work on it, you know, $150 million, not that much. And then the outbreak goes away, not that many cases in the U.S., there's money left. Then we have a Zika outbreak. They took that money from Ebola and put it on Zika. And then Zika disappeared, and so nothing has happened since then. So it's just this retroactive stuff where you put some money in and, and nothing. There's no foresight. That's why I think this is not going to be much different, even though it's a huge pandemic and it should be different. But I hope I'm wrong. I really do hope this is one case where I'm wrong and, and we do learn something and we get ready for the next one. Because mark my word, there will be another virus coming out of bats somewhere to cause a pandemic. And we, we, these vaccines and antivirals that we're making will not be good for that one. We need something else. So, so yes, that was kind of pessimistic. Have all these labs that you mentioned that are currently researching or looking for a vaccine for COVID-19, mm-hmm. are they collaborating or how collaborative is this process, both nationally and yeah. internationally? So if you read the newspapers, right? That's my old word for the press these days, whatever it is, you know, online or if you read stories, they're saying there's unprecedented collaboration between industry and academia. All right. And sure, there is collaboration, but you can bet that people are still holding secrets very close to their heart, not just in industry, but in academic labs. Why? Because it's hell to get grants these days. And any edge you can get, you need to get in terms of publications, you know, speaking and so forth. That will help you get your next grant. And so if you can hold something to yourself in your lab, you will. And people are doing it all the time. Mark my word. Same thing in companies. I hear many companies saying, oh, we're doing this, but we can't tell you. In my view, during this pandemic, nothing should be secret not in any company or any lab, because it's all about saving people's lives. Yet people are keeping it secret, the companies, because they want to make profits and the academic labs so they can get more grants. If that doesn't tell you something's messed up. I don't know what would then. But uh, so, yes, there is collaboration. You know, we've collaborated with a number of people, but there's still secrecy beyond what there should be. And that's internationally as well, right? I, I would think so. My my 
best experience, of course, is here in the U.S., but, you know, other countries have less research money available, so I, I think it's the same. Is this a change from what it used to be? I mean, were people, are suddenly people more into profits and less into sharing than, you know, when you started this whole process, just out of curiosity? Or is it well, harder to know? You know, companies have always been secretive, right? So before there was biotech, there was just big pharma, right? Like the Mercs and, and, and Squibs and all that of the world. Um, and they were secretive as hell, right? They wouldn't tell anyone anything. They had lawyers left and right that would protect their secrets. And now, now with the biotech industry, which really came out of academia and academic developments, um, it's a slightly different culture. You know, you can find people who will talk, but they get to a point and they won't say anything because they want to protect their profits. So companies are for profit. That's the way they're designed. And by the way, it doesn't have to be that way. You can have nonprofit companies. And, and now actually a few have, jumped, have popped up to try and fund uh, the research that needs to be done ahead of time, which is good. And then we have academics. Have they always been secretive? Sure. It's just now with information so freely transmissible, right? Uh, it, it's becoming more apparent. And, and with it, of course, there's more fraud as people cheat to try and get ahead and so forth. I just think it's always been there. It's just amplified now. What about this story about, I think it was Russia supposedly trying to steal data or research on COVID-19 from American labs? Have you, what's your take on that? Have you heard anything about it that is beyond what's, what was written in the news, like the very basics? You know, those, those news stories, who knows what to believe? And if it doesn't have to do with science, you know, I can tell you that this virus was not made in a lab, but I don't know what Russia tried to steal. Um, you know, Pompeo some time ago said he had clear evidence that this was made in a lab, and his document was released on a Freedom of Information Act, had nothing, no evidence whatsoever. Uh, so I can tell you about the science, but I don't know what Russia had or tried to steal. But, you know, frankly, everything should be shared. You know, the, these reports of Russia being ready to license a vaccine and China, I think it's crazy. What, this, we are all humans. Why the hell can't we just help each other and share everything we have? So the same culture pervades no matter what. So in a, in a public sphere, we've become obsessed with, I think, vaccines for this pandemic. Mm. Is that the most promising avenue we should be pursuing, you know, in not just our thinking, but also how it's being reported, or are there other things that should be done that might be more promising and cheaper or faster? Well, in the long run, a vaccine is the best. You give it to people and it protects them without them thinking about it. And it, you take it once or twice and that's it. And we have plenty of vaccines that work that way that have eliminated many childhood diseases like measles and polio and smallpox. Um, I, I'm convinced that vaccines are brilliant, but most of the vaccines we have took many, many years to develop. The first polio vaccine took 50 years to develop. We still don't have an HIV vaccine. They're not easy. Uh, so in the meantime, though, other uh, approaches are useful. So if you had antiviral drugs, you could give them to people who you know or say early in infection and prevent the infection from getting worse. So if we had an antiviral ready in China when that uh, virus first broke out, we could have treated everyone who was infected and stopped 
the infection right there. It didn't need to spread. And those drugs are very easy to develop. No, as I said, nobody wants to pay for them. So we don't have any such drugs right now that you could give to someone early on, like Tamiflu, which you get if you have influenza. You can take it within a day or two of getting flu, and it will reduce your symptoms. We don't have anything like that. People are working on it. We're not going to have it before a vaccine. Uh, you may have heard of this drug, remdesivir, which is an interesting drug. It was originally developed for Ebola virus. It didn't work. And then they tried it with SARS, the original SARS and MERS coronas, and it seemed to work uh, in the experiments they did. And then when this virus came, they tried it. It worked. But it has to be given intravenously. So that means you only get it if you're in the hospital. And if you're that sick with COVID-19, no antiviral is going to help you because the disease you have when you get really sick is independent of the virus. It's the immune response overreacting. So an antiviral will not help. And that's why other treatments for very sick people are simply not working. Convalescent serum, where you take the serum of someone who's recovered and give it to someone else so it will protect them. If you just give it to people in the hospital, it's not going to work. You need something, you need a pill that everyone could take just prophylactically and it would protect you. We don't have it. So if we didn't have a vaccine, that would be great, but we don't have either one. So we're kind of stuck here in what we can do. Now, what I think we should be doing, and I only learned this a few weeks ago, is we should be, we should have already developed cheap, rapid tests, a strip of paper you stick in your mouth. In 10 minutes, it tells you if you're infected or not. And you can, it's a buck a strip, so you can do it every day. That's the way we deal with this outbreak. A kid in the morning before going to school sucks on this piece of paper. Mom, I'm positive. You stay home for two weeks. That's it. A buck a shot. And this is brilliant. This is developed by Michael Minna and his colleagues, and they're trying to push this through development. Now, in my opinion, it should have been already developed, but maybe, maybe it'll be ready by November, December, and it'll help next semester. But this could help every, every industry, right? Every industry could be helped because everyone could be tested, and uh, that would solve the problem. Yeah, you've actually just nailed, I mean, I think I talked at the top of the episode about why reliability was a factor of not sending my kids back to childcare. But actually, you just outlined the other thing, which is if one of them gets sick, they have to come home, or someone in their class does with 100 yeah, or 101 yeah. fever, of which you know kids get fevers constantly <laughs> because they're licking other kids' faces and such, yeah. um, that you wouldn't actually know if they had COVID or if they had just no. something else from licking a kid's face. No, um, you need daily testing. That's cheap enough to do every day. And, you know, right now we have schools starting and they say, oh, you have to be tested in the previous 12 days. Not enough, because if you're negative 12 days ago, you could easily be infected since and be shedding by the time you go to school. You need daily cheap testing. This country could do it. Uh, you know, we have trillionaires who could pay for it for everybody. It's just a no-brainer, and I don't know why it's not happening. But better than any vaccine or antiviral, because we don't have those now, cheap diagnostic testing. And we've been doing this PCRs, right, which are incredibly sensitive. They're 100 bucks a test. Takes Now is taking 7 to 10 days because they're complicated and all the labs are overwhelmed. That's not the solution. We don't need that. You need a really quick test that will simply tell you if you're able to transmit or not. How reliable would be these like mass marketed tests? Don't have to be. That's the that's the beauty. They don't actually have to be reliable because so let's let's look at a typical infection. 
you get infected on, on day zero with the virus. Then you have an incubation period where the virus is reproducing in you. And then it gets really high about a day before your symptom onset, before you get sore throat and fever and so forth. And that time is when you can start transmitting it. Then you have your symptom onset. Virus peaks a day later, so you're still transmitting. And then within seven days, you no longer transmit. Even though you may have symptoms for a while longer, you're not transmitting. So that's the only period that matters. And there's so much virus in that period that even a test that's 50% sensitive is fine because it will pick it up in that period. It may not pick it up on either end, but you don't care. You don't care on either end of that curve. So that's why the cheap, uh, actually, Michael Minnick calls them, we need a crappy test, <laughs> basically, because it doesn't matter. You don't need the gold standard. And I interviewed Tony Fauci a few weeks ago. He said, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And that's what we're talking about here. An inexpensive, inaccurate, but good enough uh, diagnostic test. And, and it's using saliva, of course, and a strip of paper. It's kind of like a pregnancy test, right? You can go buy them. They're accurate enough. Same thing. It would solve the whole problem. I'm convinced. Aside from allocating large amounts of money, are there <laughs> other ways that it might be useful to prevent epidemics, pandemics, before they spread massively around the world? Well, I think having wildlife sampling is important because you know all of our viruses have come from some kind of animal throughout history and uh, there are only there are only some certain kinds of animals that will share their viruses with us mammals first of all you know reptiles and plants and insects they're not going to do it but their viruses are too distant so we have to focus on the mammals bats are an important one because they're numerous and they fly and we know they have lots of viruses in them so we should be sampling bats more. I mean, right now we've only sampled bats in China and not even that much. And we know in, they're everywhere else and we have no idea what viruses are in them. So that needs to be done. Uh, mice are probably another good uh, species to, to sample as well. So they're sampling. And then ask which viruses there would be a threat to humans, which ones could replicate or reproduce in human cells. So I think sampling is is a big part of it. But also we need... Uh, early warning systems. And actually, that's what they had in China, because after SARS-1, a lot of the countries that got hit hard by SARS-1, was it China and Hong Kong, South Korea, Japan, they learned a lesson. And they said, we're going to put a survey system in place, whereas if we see an unusual number of cases of, say, pneumonia, that was the, that was the signature symptom of SARS, if we see an unusual number of cases, we're going to put this early warning system in. We'll go in quickly and diagnose and see what's going on. And that's how China caught this outbreak relatively quickly uh, in December. Because, you know, you could have imagined that they caught it at about 40 cases. And it could have gone, could have gone hundreds or thousands of uh, cases. But they had this early warning system. And, and they're one of very few countries that have that. So we don't have it and many others do not. And I think we need to have that better pathogen surveillance to be seeing what's out there circulating. Uh, I think all of that would really help and be proactive and it wouldn't be that costly. In addition to, of course, developing vaccines and antivirals to be ready. And I guess contact tracing should be just added onto this? Well, contact tracing comes in when you have something to trace, right? So in China, in the early days, that's what they did. They said, okay, we have this unusual outbreak of pneumonia, atypical pneumonia, and they, they 
took all the patients and then they said, who are you been in contact with the last two weeks while they were figuring out what the agent was and they quarantined them. And then once you know what the virus is, then you can develop a, a diagnostic test and start testing people actually to see where who's infected and not just sick people. So that's a problem with the early US response. We were only checking sick people, which doesn't tell you who's infected in the community. And, you know, if you remember in the U.S., our first case came into Washington State in January, and that guy came from Wuhan. But when he was found, there were already 100 other people infected that we didn't know about till later. So you have to do tracing and diagnostics early on as well. So we do have technology for developing rapid uh, diagnostics. Uh, You know, we have great tech in this country and other countries as well. So that's doable for sure. So more broadly, where would you say that the field of virology is going? Oh, more broadly, I, I think well, there's there's two there are two aspects, right? There's basic science, which is sort of what I do, just to figure out things, understand how viruses work, and then accidentally you stumble upon things that are that are useful. So a lot of the a lot of the vaccines being made now are based on fundamental stuff, vectors, uh, using other viruses as vectors that people just tinkered with over the years. So I think there will continue to be a lot of that. And our technology is so good, uh, we'll be able to sort out how almost any virus works. I mean, really the big goal is to understand when a virus gets into a host, how does it cause disease? And we don't know that. We don't get it. How does the host respond? We'd like to be able to understand that really well to be able to make better vaccines and better antivirals. So that's one area. But then there's another area of therapeutics, of treating patients. And what can we do to not only pick up infections earlier, but but treat patients? You know, you, can, you see these COVID-19 patients coming into the hospital. They can't breathe. We can give them all the oxygen they, that we can, and they still die. We don't know, we don't understand what's going on and how to control it. It's all about their immune response going out of whack, and we need to get a handle on that. And I think a lot of uh, immunology is going to go in that direction as well. But I think the most important thing would be to have some kind of diagnostic system in home. I, I look at it, you get up in the morning and you have a mirror that's actually a diagnostic and it scans you and it tells you what viruses you have that day. And that's doable at some point in the future, right? And it transmits to your physician. Uh, you have this infection, you, your physician, go pick up the prescription on the way to work or something. You know, that's what we need to pick it up really early rather than waiting for you to feel symptoms of infection. That's probably 10, 20 years off, but companies are working on it, actually. You, you, can, you can already wear watches that'll measure your oxygen and blood pressure and all that stuff. So it's just a matter of time that sensors can be developed that do that. I think that would be a great thing to be able to uh, bring to I- infectious diseases. Yeah, I wonder if some of the new things we can imagine, we just look to the NBA players um, in many instances, because I remember right the, one of the big moments where people realized that at least I realized that COVID was a thing was when they shut down the NBA season because Rudy Gobert got uh, COVID yeah, yeah. after touching all the microphones. Um, and, <laughs> and suddenly, right, they had no tests in the entire state of Oklahoma, but magically they scrounged up, you know, 100 right. for the NBA players and got tested immediately. Of course. Um, and similarly, right, they're sitting in this bubble in Walt Disney World, which is also kind of hilarious. But they're all wearing the, watches. I think our reliance on PCR-based tests is, 
is going to be questioned by this outbreak, at least for this kind of virus, where there's a very defined peak of, period of shedding, and the need for less sensitive uh, detection systems that can be done at home is is very obvious now, and I think that will carry forward to other infectious diseases as well. So, do you think this might change culture? Could our culture become more aware of infectious diseases, maybe? Well, that's a great question, and I have to say, from my podcast alone, right, this week in virology, I'd been doing it for um, twelve years, and you know, we had pretty good numbers. You know, we had about 20,000 subscribers. Pretty good for a two-hour, unscripted, pretty hard-to-understand podcast, right? But we're in the, in the scheme of the world, we we're pretty much ignored. Nobody cared. Because nobody thought, you know, aside from flu, nobody cared about viruses. Nobody thought that there's a pandemic of 35 million people infected with HIV-1. People don't think about that, right? And now, all of a sudden, everybody wants to listen. And I have more questions than I can answer. So I'm hoping, and I lament on the show, I go, ah, you people are here, it's great, we love you, but you're going to go once this is over, and you're missing out because virology is so cool. And this has to do with any field which, which you're passionate about. You think everyone should pay attention to it. But I think virology and infectious diseases in particular is pretty important because it, it, your life depends on us being able to take care of these things. So I think there's a heightened awareness, again, whether it endures or not, I don't know. All you, you turn on any news program, that's all you see right now is COVID-19. It's all over the print media, the websites, podcasts left and right. You know, all of a sudden there's dozens of <laughs> SARS-CoV-2 podcasts. Um, some of it will probably endure. So um, again, just like the impact on research, I have little faith, but I'm hoping I, I'm wrong. I'm hoping that people will will change. But you know, you have to realize that there's a segment of the U.S. population, and I'm sure other countries as well, that doesn't wear face masks, that doesn't think that kids get infected and transmit. They don't even think it's a big deal, the SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. So they don't come and listen to us, unfortunately, because they think we're propaganda arms. It's a minority, you know, maybe it's 30% of the population. That's troubling. And as you know, a minority can translate into something far worse at some point. Yeah, it'll be interesting to know if this will end up marking kind of like you described at the beginning of the podcast where there was a different era, as it were, in mm. how you started studying from today, if this will mark another era and change in which how people think about diseases, both in the present and I think from our angle, we're already seeing changes in how people write about the past, actually, and the role yeah. of pandemics in the past. It's become much more heightened in the last, obviously, six months or so. Yeah, I don't. We'll see. You'll have, you know, the next pandemic is not for another 10 years or so. So we have some time, but I hope they'll be around and I'll, I'll see. We can talk again. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's been a really wonderful walk through both the history of the field using you as our, as our lens, which has been really wonderful, and uh, hopefully giving our listeners uh, more background on the, the virus and the the science end than we often do. I, so I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks okay. so much. Thanks for having me. I do appreciate the opportunity to uh, reflect back on the history I've seen in the field and talk about what it means and where we're going. It's, you know, you don't often get to do that. And there are not a lot of people around that have been around for a long time. So it's a, it's a really good thing to do. Thank you. 
so that was a really wonderful and very different interview for us, I think, Lee, because we both learned the history of someone who's lived through the field of virology and could give us insights about what's happening today. At a very personal level, yeah. Yeah. And also to talk to us about this today, I'm going to bring on Tori Zerl, who set this all up for us. She is our new research assistant. And she contacted Vincent and basically made this all happen. She has an MA in molecular biology and is also interested in potentially doing a PhD in history of science. So by the time that's done, she will know far more about all of this than we do historically and already knows far more. Yeah. Yeah, and already knows far more, I'm sure, about the actual science. So we wanted to talk to her about this. So Tori, what did you think about, perhaps we can start with the history he laid out Um, how you learn molecular biology today. I thought what he said was really interesting, especially because I am that next generation in molecular biology. And the thing that I thought was coolest was when he mentioned changes in philosophy and technology. Because I think the first thing I learned was whatever you learn today will be irrelevant in a year to five years. So this idea of learning how to think which he mentioned a couple of times in a couple of different ways was really cool. And I think that makes it, um, it's just interesting to see. And then at the same time, how throughout history, people are still responding pretty similarly, despite learning different ways. So have you guys heard like stories or legends about his generation? I'd say definitely. During that time, a lot of really amazing things happened in science. Uh, He mentioned polymerous train reaction, which uh, PCR for short, and that was discovered in the in the early 80s. And that's like, if science had a rock star, Carrie Mullis who discovered it was that rock star. And like anything we're able to do now that Dr. Rockamiello mentioned is because of that. So like that time was the it time in especially like mo- molecular bio or virology. Yeah, it's interesting because it also means in some ways, this story that Lee and I keep rediscovering or talking about, you know, where we asked him about his graduate training generation, which is kind of exactly what I thought he would say about the, the 70s, to be very honest, versus today. It actually means we need to chop up that story, Lee, much more finely than we have. I mean, I think we've chopped it up into three large 20th century blocks, when in fact, it's probably three large overarching blocks, but then within that, 10 or 12 smaller blocks of changes and how people are thinking about diseases and viruses and such. I mean, it's actually even more than that, right? Because when he was talking about pandemics, he mentioned flu, right? He mentioned influenza and he didn't mention the bubonic plague pandemic. That got us actually researching all this. And listening to him made me realize as a total outsider to the field, I'm not like embarrassed in saying that, that these are two different fields of study, right? So he would not care all that much about the bubonic plague pandemic and people who study the the plague would care very little about influenza. So there's also like these parallel fields which have their own different trajectories, right? So it's not only change over time, as you said, Merle, but also change over topic or different topics. Yes and no. I mean, right, so PCR has obviously been very important for a lot of these ancient DNA plague studies, right? I mean, so there is there is overlap in how people are doing things, I think, and how they're thinking, right? I mean, that shape that we that I've talked about and you just mentioned 
are different for plague versus influenza, but in some senses they are perhaps similar in terms of how people think about pandemics. Yeah. So, Tori, do you have anything else to add? I just want to stress how awesome it is to have him on this podcast. <laughs> He's like, I'm his, one of his biggest fans. I've been watching his classes since like 2010. He's been posting them online. And just like the importance of education with science, I think, and making it accessible, even if it's not easy to understand. So you started listening to his classes. So, so the actual class, the Virology 101, the one he was talking yes. about? Mm-hmm. He's been posting them on YouTube and different online sources at least for 10 years because that's when I found it. <laughs> so, How did you get to that? That was before I was even in science. And someone along the way, I learned that viruses in terms of like specimens blur what it means to be alive. Like it's not alive, but it's not not alive. And just the idea that there's a continuum to life really amazed me. So I wanted to learn more. And I just typed in viruses. And <laughs> that kind of dictated my life. <laughs> so it was cool. Uh, I think it's a great story that really shows the, the power of science outreach or of research outreach, more broadly speaking. Right. And curiosity, like he mentioned, it's just being curious about something and then having the accessible information. So it's like the two together. So I'm a huge fan of anything that's education open and accessible. And he's such a champion of that. Yeah, it's interesting because he doesn't actually simplify everything all that much, right? I mean, it's actually fairly complex processes. He's explaining both in the things I've watched that he's produced and even on this episode today, it's actually quite complex. And I don't know if I've seen a historian really try to get across a lot of the complexities Right, I think we tend to, if we do something public, simplify a lot more, and that's how what we're told. And I don't know if you have to do that. It's an interesting case study of that. It's an interesting case study, yes, and I agree with you that we historians do simplify. But on the other hand, I think one of the strong points that he has is that this is a life or death thing, right? And he was pretty yeah. clear about that at some point earlier on. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if the other question, which would be interesting to think about, is whether or not COVID-19 does mark a turning point in how we think about past and how we study the past in terms of pandemic history. I mean, you're now going to live through this and do, in theory, doctoral work through it. And so this might shape very much how you do research, say, for example, and what topics you're interested in. Right. And how I study it. (laughs) I'm sure it will change. Yeah, I'm sure lab culture will be very different if you start like in a year or two. Right. I think one of the things that did come across from this interview is the vast difference between science and history. I think that was very clear throughout the interview on essentially almost every topic we spoke about, right? About research, about speed, about relevance, about the people involved, about policy, about politics. There really is very little to to compare both these disciplines. Well, yeah, if you think about it, his, in some ways, main complaints are that people are less curious now because you're end goal objective driven, which I think is the case to an extent in history. 
But actually, if you think about it, most people I know, and I include myself here, Lee, the work I do is driven purely by my own curiosity and very, very little by what someone tells me to do, right? I mean, I got to a field because I was interested in it. I got guided in that field. But I essentially, like you, started doing this plague stuff because I just got bothered about something and then we've kept picking at it, right? I mean, that's, that's all pure curiosity, I would say. But the scales are, again, vastly different. Right. I mean, like back of an envelope calculation, I think the NIH's budget is what, like 200 times more than than the National Endowment for the Humanities is. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with that. I'm not I'm not disagreeing. My point is, is it's interesting because money is less of an issue. What's an issue is how you have to go through hoops to get the money and what questions you're allowed to ask. Right. Versus for us, money is always the issue. Yeah. So as we wrap up this section, we'd like to thank Tori again for joining us for this episode and helping us putting it together. So thanks again, Tori, and goodbye. Yeah, thanks so much, Tori. I really appreciate the help and talk to you soon. Yes, thank you so much. So to conclude the episode, I want to actually expand upon a topic, Lee, that I talked about at the beginning because I'm curious to hear about your thoughts. And that's childcare or just generally balancing taking care of your daughter and balancing your career and all the fun that goes into this type of stuff. So what are you doing in terms of when your daughter gets a little older? So, so far, she's like half a year old now, almost exactly half a year old. So far, we've raised her all by ourselves. I mean, this past week was actually the first time one of her grandparents took care of her. Actually, two of her grandparents took care of her at the same time. But yeah. So until now, what we did is, so every week now, we have kind of like a I don't know, business meeting or something in which we just schedule who takes care of our daughter at what point, right? Which, I mean, it's, it's kind of formal and everything, but it's actually very helpful that I know that I have like, 50% of the time now that I can do more or less whatever I want. And I know I'll be free to, for example, record this podcast. Right? So, so that, that's how we can do it. I mean, other, other, otherwise, it's, it's simply too difficult, I think. That's a system that worked for us. I mean, how did you guys, or how are you guys doing that? Yeah, I mean, I think we do relatively the same thing, but we have standing hours, right? I mean, so... As you know, Lee, I do an early morning shift starting at 7.30 in the morning for a couple hours. Then my wife is watching the kids and then we flip and I watch the kids for a couple hours. And then we both hurriedly get work done or tape podcasts like this during my kid's nap. And then we both kind of watch them until they go to bed. Um, so we kind of have standing hours. So what happens if they wake up either during their naps or at night? So who, who, who goes to them? I mean, that's like the big question for us. If it's nap time, I usually am in charge because I have, as you know, more flexible hours than my wife does, right? I mean, she works a more standard nine to five job, although everyone in her company is at this point basically raising small children and trying to work. So, you know, it's, everyone's adapting. So I will go to them at that point. Um, and if it's nighttime, I mean, they don't wake up at night because we taught them how to sleep through the night, unlike you apparently still. <laughs> Anyways, so is your daughter sleeping through the night yet? 
Yeah, she does sleep through the night. We she usually goes to to bed at like six p.m. or so, and starts waking up at maybe four or five a.m. So we get like a good ten, eleven hour chunk, which is not okay. not perfect, but I think it's it's definitely good enough for us now. Yeah, I mean, I think this all brings up really the problems of moving forward, right? I mean, so I've been doing this now for five months. I can kind of keep doing it, but I'm getting very tiredly. And I don't think I'm the only one, right? Yeah. I mean, I personally can say that I've been sleeping way less than I should have. I'm pretty sure you have as well. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, in this podcast, I'd rather be taking a nap, but you know, got to tape a podcast. <laughs> Do our outreach as, as we should. Yeah. I mean, I do think, you know, that this is one potential avenue that I think should be done more. But, you know, historians, for whatever reason, don't seem to do it as much unless it's a very scripted podcast. Yeah. So I guess that on this note of taking care of our precious children, we can conclude our episode here. Until next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and Enjoy your time at home with your children.